All right, let's turn to Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 18. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 6. The title of the study is The Woman Rides the Beast, or The Woman Rides the Beast. But if you want something that's a little more fun than that, you could call it Beauty and the Beast. Last week, we saw a description of this woman in verse 4, and she is described in a beautiful manner. It was arrayed in purple and scarlet. It was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And so um, then it's not so pretty after that. But you have this woman... You can call her beauty, and you have the beast or the Antichrist. So if you don't like uh, the woman rides the beast, then you can go with that one. We mentioned last week, and I'm going to make reference to again a couple of times, things change quickly in the world. I don't have to really emphasize that point too much right now because we're all living it out. I mean, we haven't even been this, doing this for three weeks yet. I mean, look how fast the world changes. And while we're praying for the mercy of God upon our country, and while we're praying for things to not get bad, I mean, I think we're all aware that if things don't go well, they could spin out of control so quickly. And the whole world scene could be changed. And so as we read about things that are going to happen in the future that we cannot yet see, or it does not yet perfect, make perfect sense to us geopolitically and otherwise, allow our present days to instruct us that things could change radically and, um, and the, everything could be reoriented in the world. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 6 and we saw this uh, woman um, who's called the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And she is a city um, and it's a city that is given over to idolatry and to persecution, and we will see is a financial hub in the world. Um, and we have yet to um, really dive into all the different ways in which people have described her. But she, I mean, you pretty much can pick almost any scenario and of a world, a great city, and people will say that's who this is. But as we talked about last week, um, I really do believe this is a literal Babylon um, ancient Babylon that's going to be restored and rebuilt uh, in the last days. I don't know if I'm right about that, but we, last week we looked at the reasons for that, namely being there's never been the destruction that was prophesied about ancient Babylon that's been realized. And so if that is the case, then we should expect that it will be fulfilled completely as described. So that is my main reason. Uh, for thinking about that. We also talked about some other reasons that this is uh, literal Babylon is because um, in the this you know, Babel, that the Tower of Babel, there was a the, one of the first world leaders under Nimrod, not a good guy. Um, it was from here that they were sought to worship um, and uh, the gods and idolatry um, found its place and the Lord destroyed, destroyed that. So it's, there's a lot of similarities here. Uh, but let's go ahead and move on into our text um, before us tonight. We begin at verse 7, and we read, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life 
from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So we'll stop right there, but in verses 7 through 15, we're going to get a description um, of the beast and the woman. But we begin here first in verses 7 and 8 um, with the description of the beast. And the first thing that we note about this is that he carries this woman. So the Antichrist, um, the beast, um, and we've talked about this in our previous studies, how that is who we're talking about when we talk about the beast, is the Antichrist. He is going to carry this woman. So it's through his efforts, his power, it's his um, uh, you know, political uh, might in the world that this city is going to find prominence and is going to rise to a place of such religious and political influence, even to the point of persecuting um, Christians, uh, persecuting the nation of Israel. And she's going to find that position, and the city's going to have that prominence because she is riding on top of his shoulders, if you will. Um, the other thing we see in verse 8 is this reference to the one um, that was and is not and yet is. Um, this is a reference to, I believe, that he's the Antichrist is going to be uh, wounded, is going to recover from this wound, and it will be viewed as a resurrection. So he was, and then he died, is not, and then he comes back to life, and yet is. Um, so Revelation 13, verses 3 and 4 um, talk about this uh, resurrection, this mortal wound. We read, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And the world marveled and followed the beast. So, I mean, you can see the similarity of language here. So they worshiped the dragon, Satan, who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who was able to make war with him? Um, so again, uh, everybody had been trying to kill the two witnesses, and um, nobody was able to, uh, to do that. There's going to be an assassination. Uh, eventually, he kills those two witnesses, um, and they see his power there. But they also see his power and that when you try to kill him, he rises from the dead. And so the world is going to be marveling at this, and it's going to give him opportunity um, to, to deceive the nations. As we move on, we come still in verse 8, um, we see that this, this one is going to ascend out of the bottomless pit um, and go to perdition. So he's going to ascend out of the bottomless pit. It is the dragon or the Antichrist that is manipulating him and empowering him. So this is another feature of the beast. He's going to be manipulated. He's going to be empowered by Satan himself. This is no mere man in the sense of just being a man who has power. He's going to have Satan funneling all of his efforts and all of his energies and all of his best resources, evil resources, into this guy so that he might be able to control and deceive the world. But the next thing that we see still there in verse 8 is he descends out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. That is what's going to happen to him. He awaits destruction. So although he's going to have a day and a time and a power where he deceives this world, it is going to end with destruction. He will remain for a little while, but his end will be complete 
destruction. Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 through 20, tell us this explicitly. And I saw the beast. So this is at the second coming of Jesus. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. So if the harlot is the city where this religious idolatry kind of launches from, the man who's really leading this religious idolatry is the false prophet. Um, And he worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, the beast and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake a fire burning with brimstone. So there's your perdition that we just read is going to come. So he awaits destruction. Satan is going to use this guy. Satan doesn't care about this man, this false prophet. He has an agenda, and that is to um, deceive the world, destroy mankind, and still in his deluded mind, he thinks he's going to ascend above Uh, the Lord and take the throne. And if you can use these two guys to do it, that's fine. But in the end, they're going to be destroyed. And this is how Satan always works and has worked down through the ages. He promises people um, uh, wealth. He promises people influence. He promises that they're going to actually have a, a great opportunity. And then he destroys them. And that's exactly what takes place. To us, we're given this sobering warning in 1 Peter 5.8. It says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, lion, seeking whom he may devour. You have an enemy, and his name is Satan, and he wants to destroy you. Jesus made reference to this destruction in John chapter 10, verses 10 through 11. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I have come that you may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. And I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is the Lord. He wants to give life. The thief, Satan, he wants to destroy. And even in his number one man, destruction comes. Now, it's the Lord that destroys, but it's the anti- Satan who has set up this man for the destruction. And so we must be so careful that we are not deceived, that we are not led astray. And be mindful of what the word of the Lord has to say, what your brothers and sisters in Christ who are following Jesus closely, what they have to say and the warnings that they give. Heed them because you have an adversary. Again, going back to 1 Peter 5.8, he wants to devour you. He wants to take you down. He wants to um, make your life miserable. That's what Satan wants to do. And so we're called to be sober. We're called to be vigilant. And the thing about a lion is they never announce they're coming. I mean, they sneak up. They, they, they come quietly through the tall grass, right? And, and then at the last moment, they show themselves, hoping that in showing themselves at the last moment that it, the advantage is great enough to overcome that prey. You are prey to Satan. And he is lurking in the tall grass. You know, one of the things we all can take as a good exhortation right now is that it's in idleness, right? 
and not being engaged, being industrious. It's in idleness that Satan often does his best work on us. So you have maybe more time right now than you are used to having. Be careful of these things, you know, the devices. Be careful of the computer. Be careful of sitting in front of the TV. Be careful of just wasting your days and your time because as the enemy is luring you in, he will pounce on you and he wants to destroy you. So yeah, it's the Antichrist that one day is going to be destroyed um, and he's going to be set up by Satan, but understand that you have an adversary that wants to take you out right now. So walk wisely. Walk soberly. Be vigilant. Be on attention. Be uh, paying attention to what and how he works. If you will take a few moments to think about it, and you'll just kind of do a review of Satan's work in your own life, you'll get a plan for how he's going to come at you again. How has he been victorious in the past? Where has he lured you? Where has he deceived you in the past? You can be pretty certain he's going to try and do it the same way. And so we can learn. We can learn from this. We keep on moving um, towards the end of the last point in verse 8, is that we see that he's a deceiver. Um, He loves to deceive people. Um, So what we read there um, in verse 8 is that, um, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel. They're going to be, when they see this, Uh, apparent resurrection that takes place. Some say that it's not real. It just is, it looks like a resurrection. Others say, no, it's a real resurrection. Okay, whatever. I think it's a real resurrection, but here's the thing. The world's going to think it's a real resurrection and they're going to marvel. They're going to see it as a sign. They're going to see it as a wonder. And he's going to deceive them. He's going to deceive them through this apparent resurrection. He's going to deceive them with his power and his plan for the world. He's going to deceive them by overcoming the two witnesses. And by the time everybody wakes up to it, he'll have a stranglehold upon this world. He's going to deceive. (laughs) Well, Jesus had something to say about that in Matthew 24, verse 5. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So there's not just one Antichrist. There's going to be many Antichrists, many deceivers, but there will be no deceiver like the one who was propped up by the dragon Satan himself to deceive. You know, those who say, if I can't see it, I won't believe it. Those are the ones that are going to be most susceptible to this deception. They're going to be primed for it. Well, if I don't see it, I won't believe it. Well, okay, so then if you see this this one who comes on the scene in the last days, you are going to be most susceptible for this deception. So we are to be a people of faith. And we allow the word of God to instruct us and inform us and teach us on how to live. Second Thessalonians 2.11, talking about this same man and this same season, says, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So it's not just that there's going to be a deception that this man is wielding, but in this season, for those who reject the gospel and want nothing to do with it, God is going to allow this deception to roll over them. So it's going to be a a time of just blindness like you've never seen the world has ever seen before. And that's saying something, isn't it? Because there is so much blindness that already exists. We move on into verse 9. 
And we, are, we read, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are, the seven, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Seven heads are seven kingdoms. Now, this is a, a much disputed passage. The earliest um, interpretation of this, what these seven heads are and these seven mountains where the woman sits, is that this is Rome. And that this is in the first century, second century, they looked at this, um, the early centuries, they looked at this and they saw this as the Roman Empire um, and the city of Rome was Mystery Babylon. And it was this worship of this idol of these uh, different emperors and they easily plugged and played with that. You can understand why. Later on, um, people began to look when the uh, Catholic Church gained all kinds of world power and was doing um, just evil around the world. Well, the church began to look at, at this system and said, that is the, um, uh, the woman. This is that city still there in Rome, the Vatican still being there. And so this became the popular view. And that is still a view that many hold today. Um, although some has been some modification of it, and they'll say that this is what the Antichrist and the false prophet will do. They will take and they will make use of um, the, the system of the Catholic Church. Some will say it won't resemble what we see today of the Catholic Church, but it will be that shell that it will infiltrate. So there are different versions of this. And so Rome has been the number one uh, name for what uh, these seven mountains are because um, it is said that Rome sits upon seven hills. And so the seven heads are the seven mountains. And so they look and they make this connection. So, I mean, th that is a very popular belief down through the system, uh, down through the uh, a system of belief down through the ages. I, I don't really subscribe to that. Um, I personally think that the seven mountains are referring to seven kings or seven kingdoms. Um, and that's kind of, we, we've seen this in the past. In verse 1, we see that the woman sits upon many waters. Um, and then uh, it's interpreted for us um, in verse 15. If you'll just jump down there with me, it says, Then, you, then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the uh, harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So it's a metaphor. So it would seem like where the woman sits on the waters being a metaphor, that um, where she sits on the seven mountains is likewise a metaphor of the same. So this is one of the reasons. Now, in the um, Old Testament, we see the prophets often referring to um, a mountain as to a kingdom or to as a, a nation or as a power. Um, you can look at Isaiah 2.2. Jeremiah 51, 25, Ezekiel 35, 3, um, and so on. You'll, you'll find this. But most notably in Daniel, um, the fifth kingdom that comes, the kingdom of God, is referred to as a great mountain. So there is biblical reason to take this reference of the woman sitting upon the seven mountains as referring to seven kingdoms, having an influence upon um, the uh, seven kings or kingdoms. Moving on, verses 10 through 11, um, we get a summary of world empires. Um, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, 
number six, and the other has not yet come, number seven, and when he comes, he must continue a short time, and the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And is of the seven and is going to perdition. Okay, yeah. We've got to think upon this for a little while. Again, many have tried to associate this um, down through the ages with the different emperors of the Roman Empire. The problem is, is there, you have way more than seven um, or eight. There's a long list of them. And so any attempt to try and associate these with uh, the Roman emperors down through the ages, it's you, you don't find agreement among uh, scholars who subscribe to this view. It gets complicated. It's a difficult passage. I don't want to be dogmatic about it myself. But rather than seeing this as a succession of Roman emperors, I see this as a summary of world empires. And this kind of fits nicely with what um, Daniel saw when he saw the, the, the kingdoms or the beast in his prophecies, that it was Babylon and that it was a Medo-Persian empire, um, that it was uh, the Grecian empire. And then there's that fourth empire um, that it was, was beastly. So, um, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go through this in just a moment, but the reference to the five fallen kings would, would go like this. Um, it would be Egypt. It would be Assyria. It would be Babylon. It would be the Medo-Persians and the Grecian. So those five, those are the five. If you just go back up into um, verse uh, 10, five have fallen. So at the time in which um, John was writing, five had fallen. Then he goes on to say, And one is. That would have been the existing Roman Empire of the day. Um, Then he goes on to say, um, the other has not yet come. Now this is where it gets gets kind of, again, we see different opinions. Well, what is the one that has not yet come? Um, So the, the, the idea here, the one that had not come, would be the revived um, Roman Empire. So that would be um, number seven. So number six would be the Roman Empire, the one that was. Number seven would be the revived Roman Empire. And then the eighth would be um, the Antichrist setting up his kingdom from among that seventh revived Roman Empire. And so um, you you got a a list up on the screen. You can see that. Um, But there is another way of viewing this that I think has some, it's worth consideration. I personally, at the end of the day, what I have just shown you, that is where I land. But I do believe there's another view that has some, has some really good logic. It's biblically, um, it, it, I mean, it's just as solid as a uh, take uh, as this one. Um, and so people have different, different approaches to this. But Here's a a second way to view this. Is that, again, same list, um, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Grecian, Roman, but now we come to this next um, um, one, which is an Islamic. So after the Roman Empire, the next dominating world empire was the Islamic Caliphate that lasted almost a thousand years upon the earth. It was It was massive. It covered more territory than the Roman Empire. And it was, in many ways, more ruthless 
than the Roman Empire. Um, whereas the Roman Empire allowed culture to stand in many places, not with the Islamic. It was all, everything was wiped out. Everything fell. Culture, religion, um, language, it all changed. And so then that would then make um, the eighth kingdom or the Antichrist kingdom a revived Islamic caliphate. So very different ideas. One is to look and to see a, um, a scene where the, the Roman confederation would come back on as a world power. We don't see that yet. The other option is to see that it, an Islamic power will come back. So let me give you the reason, the one reason why I just, I I lean towards it being a European confederation, a Roman empire, rather than an Islamic. And that is where we just were. Um, And I'm not going to spend much time on it. You're going to have to think on your own. But in verse 10, it says, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. And the beast that was and is not is the eighth. Okay, so number seven, if you look at the end of verse 10, will continue for a short time. So the only way that you can, the Islamic empire lasted longer than any of the other empires. So it it didn't continue for a short time, it continued for a long time. Um, Some would say that this continuing for a short time is is looking forward into verse 11 as uh, at the beast rather than looking back at the, the seventh. So, wrestle with it. I'm not going to spend any more time on that, but this is some form of this. So what's happening? John is getting a revelation that is saying these rolled empires, which note every one of these rolled empires, no matter which table of empires you go with, they all had direct influence upon Israel. They all had an influence upon the nation of Israel. Because you say, well, why did you start with the Egyptian? Because the Egyptian is the first empire that had a negative influence upon the nation of Israel. And so did every other empire that came after. So that's kind of, that's why that becomes a starting point. Let's move on. Verses 12 through 15. Um, we are introduced and get more information about the ten horns. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. That makes it really simple. It's nice when it's just simple like that. And they've received no kingdom as yet. So the ten horns are ten kings that haven't come yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Short time. Read that as short time. Um, my My little interpretive influence there. These are of one mind. And they will give their power and authority to the beast. To number eight. And he's of number seven. But he's number eight. If you go back to those verses we just read in verse 10 and 11. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. So wow, we're all the way out to the second coming here. For he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and those who are with him are called, I love it, chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So again, she's, it's the influence over this one city is having incredible influence over the nations of the world. Um, good reason to maybe say that that is headquarters for the Antichrist. And she's writing upon that influence and that power. 
So him, the Antichrist, having more maybe political ambitions and the false prophet from the city having more religious ambitions. So Revelation 13 gives us the same imagery that we just read here. Um, and it's, it's you know, identifying uh, the nations that are going to be present at the time in which the Antichrist arises on the scene and he's going to fit into that system. He will be plug-and-play leader for that last world-dominating empire. But let's turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 and 24, where Daniel makes a very similar prophecy. And thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different than all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue the three kings. So th- there's going to be ten kings, a ten-king federation of this um, seventh world empire. Antichrist is going to come on the scene. Seven out of the ten will be for him, and the three that stand in opposition will be destroyed. And so um, this is the... Uh, the way that he's going to come on the scene. What, 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 where is it? We don't know. We don't see it yet. But it can come up, again, so very quickly. So very quickly. I'm praying for, and I actually believe that we're going to see a, a recovery, um, you know, throughout the world of this virus. This is what I'm praying for. I know it's what you're praying for. And um, it's what I'm hoping for. But imagine if, capitalized, underlined, circled, highlighted, if, Imagine if that didn't happen. Imagine if this thing just came back in a mutated form and just decimated, decimated countries and powers and economies. Could you see how quickly things could just spring up and the whole geopolitical world as we know it today could be radically changed? So I, I, why do I bring that up? I'm not trying to give a scenario, and I'm not saying what we're going through is the beginning of the Ten Kingdoms. I didn't say that. But what I am saying, it can change fast. It can change so fast. So as we read these things, don't push them off to Never Never Land in a time that you'll never have to worry about. It could be something that begins to develop so very quickly. Now, I don't believe we'll be on the scene. The church will be gone. And part of the reason I believe that is because of what we read there in verse 14. is that the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and kings of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. When the Lord returns at his second coming, and that's what's referring to, to destroy these ten kings, to destroy the beast, the Antichrist, he's going to wipe them out, but the saints are going to be coming with him. And who are these saints? These are the ones that are called chosen and faithful. Chosen. That's how we come to follow the Lamb. The Lord calls us. And, and, and we must make that decision, I believe, in the free will of man too. But this is a sovereign work of God choosing us and calling us to follow him. So chosen is how they come to follow them. But they're also faithful. And faithful is how they follow the Lamb. We are chosen. That's how we come to follow the Lamb. But how we follow the Lamb is in faithfulness. So while we rejoice in the fact that we've been chosen and called by the Lord into his kingdom, that does not become a reason to then live lax um, spiritual and moral lives. 
No, how do we live? We live in a faithful manner. Oh, chosen, that's all about the sovereignty of God. Faithfulness, that is about man's responsibility, but not without drawing upon God's strength for it. Chosen and faithful. This is how we're known in heaven. And that's how you are known. Verses 16 and 17, there's a fallout between the harlot and the beast. You have a civil war taking place in this uh, uh, corrupt, last days persecuting, (laughs) um, idolatrous system. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. I mean, it's quite graphic here. So at some point during the unholy alliance of the beast and the false prophet in this city, it's going to be a breakdown. And the nations, those ten nations, are going to hate the influence that this city has been having upon the world. And they are going to destroy her. But in verse 17, we see that it's the Lord himself that orchestrates this. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. (laughs) You know, Political people can get together and think they're doing whatever they want, but at the end of the day, they do whatever God wants. He is sovereign and he is controlling. Oh, he gives them influence and he allows them to make their own decisions. But at certain key points in time, they fulfill the purposes of God that he is sovereign even in the darkest of times. And so what is it that he puts in their hearts to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled? So this 10 king federation, Three are going to be destroyed, but uh, it starts with ten. It's going to be in their hearts like, we need to give this to this guy. Evidently, it's not going to like make a whole lot of sense. But they're just going to like, let's give it over. Let's let him lead us. And, um, you know, who knows? When is that going to happen? I think in the middle of the tribulation could be a great time once he kills those two witnesses. Could happen at the beginning, but would be an opportune time. And we close here in verse 18. And you, I keep referring to the woman as being a city. And you may say, how do you get there? Well, verse 18 is how I get there. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. <laughs> well, as the angel speaks, it seems like it's really clear in his mind, doesn't it? It's like, oh, well, you know, it's the great city. And we sit here and we think, and who is the great city? Again, there has been all kinds of names that have come forward. Rome, I mentioned already. Some have said Jerusalem. I don't think there's any value to that at all. Others, a lot of people like to say, isn't this New York City? <laughs> well, um, no, it's not New York City. Um, one view, especially among those who take the, uh, s- the uh, seven nations as being the Islamic and the revived Islamic, many would say that under that scenario, that the great city is not literal Babylon, but is actually Mecca, the center of, of Islam, where there is the case being there is more idolatry happening, and Islam is an idolatrous faith. There's more idolatry happening there. And so... There are many other cities. Um, some have said, no, it's the Illuminati. Well, the Illuminati is not even a city. But I mean, there is an endless list of names that are put forth as who the great city will be. We don't know at the end of the day. The Bible, the Bible is silent on who the fourth 
um, uh, beast is going to be in Daniel's prophecy or who this one is going to be, that the, uh, the kingdom that the Antichrist is going to rule and reign over, where these ten nations are, and what the great city is. We don't know, can't say definitively, but we can say it's going to be clear in the end. So next week, as we get into chapter 18, we'll read of the destruction of this great city. Great in the sense of terrible, great in the sense of influence. But I want to just leave you with these positive words. You're chosen. God picked you to be on his team if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're to be faithful, to obey him to the very end. Now, if you're not on team Jesus, if you are not one that's come to put your faith and trust in him, you need to do that. He's calling you to put your faith and trust in him. And you need to do that. And the way you do that is by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king. He is master over your life. That he died on the cross for your sins and then he rose from the dead telling us that he was victorious, that you can actually have the hope of everlasting life. This is how we come and we make a confession to follow him and then we obey him. This is how you enter into that that, um, relationship with the Lord. And if you haven't done that, there's no better time to do it than right now. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, we admit this is challenging stuff. We don't understand it all completely. But the point of what's going to happen, Lord, is really clear. There's going to be an evil world empire that comes in the last days that destroys and deceives, which you will come at your second coming and destroy and establish your kingdom, to which we say, even so, Lord, come quickly. Lord, we are glad to be called chosen. We're glad that you give us the grace to live a life that is faithful to you. Lord, if there's any that are listening and watching right now that don't know you, that they are not believers, Lord, we pray that you would just overwhelm them with the sense of your goodness and your love and their own sin, their own sense of desperation to be made right by you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Again, Lord, we close by just praying for the church around the world, Lord, not meeting. Lord, it's hard to even say that and to think of the influence and to take it all in. But we know that you are greater than gatherings in a building and your church is greater than that and so lord we just stand back and we say we don't know what to do except keep doing what you've told us to do and that is to love each other and to pray and to preach your word and edify we pray you just put your spirit upon us lord in such an amazing fashion even through this broadcast that's going out right now in a very impersonal way Use it for your glory, Lord. And not just this one, Lord. The thousands, the tens of thousands that are happening right now at this hour. Oh, Lord, be gracious. Be gracious to this planet, to this country, to this state, to Lynchburg, Virginia. And pour your mercy out. Give us eyes to see you and to call upon you. And Lord, we thank you that we have access to your throne room. And we believe that you have heard and that you will answer. In the name of Jesus, amen.